everybody. This is uh, Jeff Morton with my co-host, Dr. Dina Dye. You're listening to Returning to Eden. Say hello, Dina. Hello, Dina. No, hi, everybody. <laughs> well, we'd like to thank you guys for joining us again for the second week uh, since we've come back from our hiatus. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about that. We're back, and we're going to keep trying to do this. I do have to make a disclaimer, though. Dina's got about, uh, I don't know, what, 10, 20 feet of snow surrounding her house right about now? <laughs> well, it's not quite that much. But, uh, yeah, about 20-plus inches, expecting another foot come Monday night. And they've just been in the property for two weeks now, so yeah. and her, her Internet connection might be a little ske sketchy, but so far I have her on video, and I also have a good, uh, we have good sound, so let's hope we can get through 30 minutes, the next 30 minutes, and not be interrupted by any issue and I guess you're going to upgrade your your um, internet service here come January, correct? Yeah, there's another company that operates in this area that has a better, uh, it's a line of sight which I think will be better than CenturyLink. Of course, you know CenturyLink was out this week plus Verizon. Right. So on the day before the storm we didn't have internet, we didn't have phone and we were getting ready to <laughs> be pounded. So um, I survived all three of those events this week. Good. Good. And so here we are recording another show for Returning to Eden. And the topic today is going to be, um, we're going to talk about heaven. And if any of you have watched the little thing that I put on Facebook this morning, the thing you have to keep in mind about Dr. Dina Dye and myself and the reason we're doing this show is we're not trying to recreate the wheel. We're not trying to invent a new theology or correct the theology, or make some kind of giant impact that everybody's missed. We're simply going back and looking at the material based on the way the person writing the material would have conveyed it. In other words, we're going back to the concepts that that person had in the culture with which he was writing this material and recording it. And I'm going to start the show out by saying this. If I walk, and Dina, you can, you can take it from there. If I walked up to Moses, were that ever possible, 3,800 years ago, and I said, Moses, please tell me about heaven, the first answer he would give me would be, what is heaven? He would have no idea what I was talking about. And there's reasons for that, and that's what this show is going to be about today. So Dr. Dina and I, or Dina, uh, <laughs> when we talk about heaven, uh, how would Moses interpret that conversation and as best as you can, you can articulate? Well, so, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Of course, we have a Hebrew word, Shemayim, so, and that's out of the very first verse of the Bible. And it talks about in, in the beginning, of course, God created the heavens and the earth. And that language is very much covenant language. So when we don't understand covenant language, we really don't even understand the very first verse of the Bible. So the ancients didn't see heaven and earth as sort of two separate realms, if you will. There was a connecting point between the two realms, and that was always a temple or a house for the God. So they didn't divide them up the way we do. So, you know, we got heaven up there and then we got earth down here and there's no kind of relationship between the two. That's an important place to start because that is definitely not the world of the ancient Near East. The other thing is we, since we have such a minimal understanding of the role of the king in the ancient world, understanding heaven, is, that's even worse for us. 
So in the ancient world, the king, when he sat on the throne, was basically sitting in what we call heaven. So the temple, again, the connect. So when you, for instance, ancient Israel, when they went up to Jerusalem and and they went into the temple, the picture was they were entering into heaven. So heaven and temple are essentially synonymous terms. And we all, as we've talked about numerous times, what is the meaning of the temple? Well, it is the place of the residence or the throne for the God. And in our case, it's the place of the presence of our God. So they were going up to, into the temple to approach the king. So now we, if we look at our concept, we've got this sort of space up there, you know, with floating clouds and, and sort of um, beings floating around and, and it's sort of this place that functions that we have no connection to whatsoever until we die. So right. the idea is when we die, now we can go to heaven. This is so not the ancient Near East world, I can't even begin to tell you. So one, and jump in, you know, because I could go on for... No, I, I, but I, I, I really, I could say I got a lot, there's a lot there, but I need you to set the framework so that we could try to get the person listening to the program to realize that our modern day concepts are not the concepts that the writers giving us the information had. And, and that's important that you said that, lay that groundwork. So go ahead. Yeah, and of course they didn't see any need to actually explain anything. <laughs> you know, it'd be us, like us writing about something that's very familiar, you know, in 2018. We would see no need to explain every little detail because we know everybody gets it. I mean, I can't even think of an example, but for instance, in our sort of uh, cultural world, uh, if we were to say a turkey, I mean, everybody would go Thanksgiving, you know, you don't have to explain that. So a lot of this is th are things that don't need to be explained by the writers because the people at the time uh, listening, hearing, receiving from the, the writers and the authors didn't need an explanation. The other thing that's really important in this is to understand that the cosmos, which we call the ordered universe, which makes up three realms, heaven, earth, and sea, were all considered a kingdom that required a king. Now this isn't just for Israel, but this is all ancient Egypt and the Assyrian, Babylonian world. So the cosmos made up these three realms. The realm that where the temple was located was called heaven, and that was the place where the god dwelled and where the king sat on the throne. So that's kind of the similar parameter uh, that we have for Israel. If you could just equate heaven with temple, uh, presence of God and throne of the king, that will help enormously when you're reading, uh, when you're reading the scripture. Just, just changing that idea. Well, I would add, too, Dina, because I think, too, that we tend to look at everything through a spiritual lens, but in the right. ancient world, that, that, place, that place where the king was was where the administration of his government was. And so when we look at it from that perspective, and we, then it becomes something more relatable to all of the kingdoms of the earth today and all of the, you know, the temple yeah. structures that would be the equivalent today are governmental. They're not necessarily religious shrines, although 
they had the synagogues and they had places for that. But the key thing to remember, too, is that once that king was seated on that throne, in whatever culture he was in, he was now considered and referred to as a son of God. Whatever yes, God that was, they, he was now the son of that God. And that's right. important, Again, we've got to pull this out of the spiritual realm. And again, if we do not understand the, the language of kingship, we're going to miss. Now, you brought up a great point because the term son of God was the king who inherited the throne from his father, his God. So every king in the ancient world who took the throne was called the son of God. And that's because the realm of the kingdom was in the temple, which is what we call heaven which is where the administration and function of the kingdom, that's where it was based. And so the language that we have in scripture, that, and there's a lot of language that's talking about heaven and things going on in the heavenlies is simply, well, I hate to use the word simply, but it is talking about um, governmental administration, jurisdiction, etc. So we've taken it, in, again, the space up there where no one's allowed to go with people floating around and we put it in a spiritual context. So the, the, the temple equate with heaven, equate with the, co the cosmic rulership, was the domain of the God and the God, in the domain of the God, the God would put his representative, which was the king. So the king, you know, he'd start out as like an earthly guy, and then when he was raised up to that position, he moved from earth to heaven. Do you see what I'm saying? Because he's been raised up to be king, and now he'll be seated on the throne, and his domain is the temple, which is synonymous with heaven. And to equate that to terminology that we, we readily understand today, he would essentially be, be, be born again, yes. not into into like born again uh but he was now no longer human he was now one of the gods yeah and he so was, that, every king aspired to this every right. king wanted to be divine every king wanted his god to raise him up to become divine and so he a king was no longer one that had earthly parents once he became king and was raised up he now was the son of uh, divine parents, and hence the title, Son of God. That's where it comes from. So the king would take his seat on the throne in the temple, and he was responsible to rule and reign over the cosmos, and his responsibility included maintaining the creation. Now, it'll make we don't really see that so much, or we don't really appreciate that in the other cultures, in Egyptian, Assyrian, like that doesn't make sense to us to maintain the creation because God created heaven and earth. So we'll just look at it from our understanding. When the king was seated on the throne, it didn't matter which king. He was responsible to maintain and keep creation. And what that meant was it, it meant that the heaven and earth were uh, were unified they were one see the ancient world did not separate the two spheres the two right. spheres came together in the temple and in that place so he was responsible to keep the unity if you will between heaven and earth because those are well i don't want to go there just yet 
so that the temple a temple built was signifying that it was signifying the cosmic rule of God and his the God established his son his king to sit on the throne and represent him and maintain the creation that God had created <laughs> does that make sense yeah and, and see and so when we're talking about this and I'm, I'm, I'm just going to interject this little tiny thought so you can just kind of put a place marker on what we're talking about this is essentially the story of Adam and I, I'm not going to go down that trail just yet but this is essentially the story of Adam Adam is now made king. He's been born again. He's been elevated to a position whereby he is now a physical representation or representative in the place of the heavens or the temple, and that's what we call the place of Eden. So if you could just kind of grab a hold of that concept, because what Moses is writing about, if we give him credit for writing this, is he's basically telling you or telling having a conversation about the ascension of Adam becoming king, and now he's a physical representative of a place called heaven or the throne room of God. And now, unlike all of the other kings, see, the, the ideal of gods in the ancient world was that mankind was created to serve the gods. The difference between the God of the Israelites is that we're, he was not a, it was not a tyrannical god. And so when we understand the difference, in fact, I was reading in John's book here just a little while ago that the, the God of the Israelites was completely different mm -hmm. than the gods of the ancient world. In other words, the perversion that had seeped down through the centuries, uh, when, when God established the identity of Adam on the throne, he was really establishing his order of how he did things in contrast to all of the other kings of the earth. Now, I know that opens yeah, the door so, for that, a different discussion. But a very, yeah, important point, because uh, this is where when you start having discussions with people and they freak out, you know, because we recognize that the God of Israel functioned and operated completely different right. from the gods around. So it, to mention, uh, you know, as you were talking about Adam, remember, and this is, my opinion I'm just and I wrote about this in my book but <clears throat> to me the concept of Adam being raised up from the dust of the earth and the breath of life being blown into him is very much kingship language there's that picture we have he's moving from the dust of the earth which is speaking of earth and he's being raised up uh, divine if you will or raised up born again to be king to rule and reign and uh, it's I think that this is kind of the message that's, you know, resonating all through the Bible if we can try to grab a hold of this. So one of the points I want to make about how amazing our God is compared to the rest of the gods, the king never left the throne. Now, he would go off to fight wars in other places, but his domain, heaven, throne, temple, he wasn't going anywhere because that's where it's, you know, that's where control is happening. So we have a God who sent his king son to move out from that sphere and to move into the realm of the people. Like the king in the ancient world wouldn't go out and hang out with his subjects, you know, in any way. So in the first century, if you consider Yeshua, who is the Messiah, king, 
Son of God is walking around in the with the lepers and everything else like this would never happen in the ancient world they would have been shocked and so this him healing and delivering and setting free the role and work of the king to maintain creation he's doing this in the midst of the people in a place where no king in the ancient world would ever go this is huge and we don't even we're like oh yeah he's just walking around with the folks no, yeah, he's, he's, he's doing, he's doing a ministry. Yeah. yeah. But see, then I'm going to add to your conversation because, folks, I need you to walk with me for a moment here. At all of these temples, whether it be the temples of Rome, the temples of Athens, the temples of the Hittite, the temples of, of Babylon, Assyria, whatever the case may be, when that king went into that temple and talked to this supposed God, he's talking to an idol. Okay, and now he comes out of that little room with a concept that he's going to now introduce to the people that he got from an idol. But you never see that king or that god come out of that temple. This is what Dina's bigger point is. The one true god of all of creation did come out of that temple, and he did co-inhabit with the people, and that's the whole purpose. That's the difference between all of the other gods of the ancient world, because there were no gods in those temples, folks. There were idols. There were little statues and figurines and things of this nature. So whatever that person came out and said that the god said you have to do now was his own doing. It wasn't something that some god, some wooden statue said, I want you to go out and tell all the people to take a bath. That's not what happened that person would come out and now assert himself as though he was a god, and he would speak for that piece of wood or that statue inside that little room. The Hebrew god came out of that temple, and he co-inhabited with the people. This is a huge difference in how the ancient world was structured. So the perversion was ongoing, and the father was continually trying to restore the people back to what he's doing. It's no different today. And one of the ways that our God, yod heh vav -Hey, manifested his presence to us, because obviously we can't see him, um, is through fire. Fire was a manifestation of who God is. Uh, and I would suggest reading uh, Psalm 29 the voice of God coming in the fire. And so when we see Moses on top of the mountain, which is representative of the Holy of Holies or the inner chamber or the inner sanctum of our God, it's a temple picture and God uh, is manifesting, manifesting himself as fire. fire. And what is produced out of that fire is cloud. So, you know, the cloud is surrounding the mountain. And the cloud represented the presence of God. So this, whenever we see fire going on, we know that it's the presence of God. Now he can come as a consuming fire to judge, or he can come as a purifying fire. Certainly, we know that both are true. Now if we fast way forward to the book of Acts, so the, the, as I mentioned before, the God and the king, you know, never really left their sacred space to go be amongst the people. So after, of course, in Acts, Yeshua is resurrected from the dead, and uh, the people are in what we think of the, is the women's court, 
and they look and they see tongues of fire. Um, and I've talked about this before, but one of the names for the Holy of Holies was the House of the Tongues of Fire. Because you'll remember on Yom Kippur in particular, the high priest went into the, into the Holy of Holies and with the incense and the coals, put the incense on the hot burning coals and smoke cloud was created, which, were, which was representing the presence of God. But here in Acts, we see the manifestation of God coming out from the Holy of Holies as fire, as tongues of fire, coming from the oracle of God where God speaks. So this fire language is very much a, a representation to us of the presence of God moving out from that, that sacred space among his people. And so now, you know, we, we label it the Holy Spirit or whatever, how it's manifested. But this is what is so unique in, for Israel's God and for Israel itself, is that God's presence can come out from a building, if you will, and move amongst the people because the people are supposed to be his building. His, um, you know, we see that described in, uh, in the New Testament. Living stones have created a building into which the presence of God can dwell. That makes sense. Yeah, and I would I would also add, Dina, too, because you know we we say well the the Holy Spirit descended because of the literature and the language and the translations, but I would venture to say, and this is just my opinion, that there is not a Jewish person witnessing that that would have incurred that same thing. They would have realized, based on their history, the burning bush, the fire on the mountain, they would have internalized that or literally figuratively said, the, the, the God of our fathers is here. They wouldn't have had a religious moment. They would have had a, a, an amazing moment because they would have been in the presence of Elohim and they would have known it that way. We, they wouldn't have said, well, the Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit. It wouldn't have come out of their psychology to think that way. And I want to say something again here. Dean and I are not trying to reinvent the wheel, folks. This program is about returning to the concepts that they had, something that you don't typically hear spoken of in our theological construct, whether in the Sunday churches or the Hebrew Roots Movement or whatever. We're just trying to take the scholarship that's available and go back and try to understand how they saw the events that we read about today, because they lived it. Was their concept the same as ours? I'm finding, Dina, almost across the board, no, they were not. <laughs> their concepts were completely different. In fact, I've said many, many times, if I was sitting next to the disciples and we were watching Jesus being through the kangaroo court, Yeshua, and I leaned over and I said, I read about this in the Bible. The disciples would go, what are you talking about? They, they wouldn't have a concept of what I'm talking about because their concept isn't 3,000 years later or 2,000 years later. Their concept is they're looking at the God of creation. They know who he is being treated like dirt in the eyes of the community of, the, of that day. They wouldn't have been going, oh, that's God's son, and he's, he's getting in trouble and being accused of. No, they would have seen the king of kings, the representative of all of creation, being 
um, being tried by mm -hmm. mankind. They would have seen, they would have been, oh my God, these people have no idea what they're doing. That's how they would have seen it because they knew who he was. You want to add to that? Well, and, well, and you know, we, we certainly don't. It, it appears that at that time in the first century, many, 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 you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands perhaps, recognized that Yeshua was the Messiah. Right. How did they recognize him? They recognized him by what he did, the right. healings and the deliverances, because those things were how the creation was restored. Those things were how the creation was maintained. They put those things, the healings and the deliverances and being set free and um, being raised up and yeah, all of that, they put that in a cosmic creation context in which that, I mean, in that day, if someone was healed of something, it's a whole lot, it could be a whole lot more dramatic than today. Not to say we don't have dramatic healing, believe me. But we, are, we have the benefit of science and technology and doctor. We have things available to us where we can just go in and have surgery. You know, they did not. And so sometimes we might take some healing for granted just because we can. And, and thank God for doctors and hospitals and technology. I am Absolutely. Know, I going back there. Yep. Yeah. You know, I but agree. you understand what I'm saying. Right. That was so dramatic. Like healing a leper in the ancient world is, is just only a king could, you know, restore creation that way, restore this person and to become a new creation. Only the king could do that. That was his responsibility to maintain, restore order, and, 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 and make the creation function the way it's supposed to. It, it, we just don't think like that. So it's kind of hard for us to get our hands around that. And, 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 and to kind of finish, uh, we're getting towards the end of the show here, but really when we look at the concept of heaven and we look at the concept of the Sabbath and we, looked at, we look at the concept of God dwelling with his people, we're really saying one thing, and the ancient world would have understood this. They weren't so much involved with an account of creation, but more the restore of order, the restoration of order. Does everything function the way it was supposed to? Are my crops going to grow? Are my kids going to, are we going to be, they're looking for a king to restore order to their community. Yeah. That's yeah. what the place the of heaven, good. right. So the place of heaven yeah. would have been the place where that king would dwell and, and their hope was that in his seat, being seated on the throne of heaven, that order would be restored to the kingdom. I tried to broaden that point by saying the Sabbath is in one. I mean, I obviously there's a, a gazillion reasons for the Sabbath, but I was trying to yesterday say that the Sabbath, the reason why we're, God said, told Israel to 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 really kind of practice this, to do this weekly, was because that was the day when the king would come and the order would be restored. And it's just a festival. It's another festival, a dress rehearsal for the time of the great day of the Lord, when order would be restored. So he wanted them to do this weekly, not because it's mentioned in the seven days of Genesis, but because it's mentioned in the seven days of Genesis. The time of rest is when order 
is restored to the cosmic temple. That's largely what that's all about. Yeah. No, there's no, I mean, and we might even do a show at one point just talking about all the different dimensions of the Sabbath in terms of it being an enthronement ritual. I mean, it's past a ritual. It's an enthronement of a king seated on a throne and, and what that represents in our, in our uh, weekly life, you know, where we can re actually rehearse it. But, you know, uh, one of the things I want, before I forget, and I, I think probably what we're going to have to do is have another show, continue this discussion because there's, there's so much more to say, and I want to be able to show people in scriptures. I want to be able to explain to them things like, uh, you know, what does it mean when the sun is darkened and the moon doesn't give its light and the stars are falling from heaven? Because it doesn't mean what we, in light of what we're saying today, it doesn't mean what everybody thinks it means. And this, unfortunately, because we put it into a modern-day understanding and we are looking literally at what cosmic things happen in the heavens, we have a tendency in the prophetic world to, to kind of go off a little bit, I think. So we're, we want to bring that back. But I want to mention, because we talked, heaven, temple, place where the king resides, the place where the king sets order, brings uh, cosmic order, if you will, it's no small thing that Yeshua said about himself that he was a temple. Okay, in right. John chapter 2, he talks about destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up, and he was speaking of his body. So because the temple was the place where the king uh, dwelt, functioned, made things work, healed, delivered, set free, brought order. And that is the statement Yeshua is making in that world at that time. Well, I, you know, I, I just find that I think that the saving grace of this program is, is again, Dina and I are not trying to create a new th theology or correct a theology. We're just simply trying to tell you. And, you know, Dina, i got to say this. The more scholarship stuff that I read, the, the better understanding I have of the ancient cosmology and how all this works and how it, it makes the New Testament it makes what Jesus was doing uh, more profound. Absolutely, it's like, oh my God! It makes it's like it's like he's he's reestablishing territory. Yeah, and he's taking it away from the nations in preparation of the ordination of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords where everything in all of creation will come under the ordership of the king. It's like huge. It's so much bigger than we've experienced, even in what we have experienced through the life, death, and resurrection. There's a lot more that he's doing in order to realize the kingdom in this Amen. earth. So on that note, folks, Dina, you have a closing thought? No, I, but again, we're going to pick this up because there's so much more to say about it. Uh, to me, the more I've understood this, the more profound, the more amazing, the more expansive the scriptures have become. I mean, I don't understand it all, believe me. And people right. email me things and ask me questions, I'm like, I don't know. But, but it's the, the, the reality is it's making, it makes sense to me, and I'm so excited about it making sense that I just want to help other people see how much sense it actually makes. <laughs> well, and the difficulty, because I know exactly what you just said, the difficulty is trying to pry their hands off of 
stuff that doesn't make sense. And yeah. that's that's kind of been the challenge for God Almighty for what, going on 7,000 years now? <laughs> if <Well>. not longer. <laughs> so anyway, I agree with Dr. Dye. Uh, the more that I learn this, the more exciting it becomes. And the thing is, is that the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know from an unlimited resource. This is the beautiful yeah. thing. I'm not trying to be right, and I'm not trying to know it all. I'm simply going back and looking at the historical information and getting the concepts that they had so I better understand what I'm reading in the literature. Fina, that's it for me. I'm done. Okay. That's it for me. See you next time. All right. Goodbye, everybody. God bless.